Well, if you have a, a Bible there in front of you, or if you want to look at the bulletin, it's printed in the, on the back of the bulletin as well. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 1. We just started our series through the book of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, and we are up to verse 9. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And I'll ask, as is our custom, that you stand for the reading of God's Word. Give ear to the Word of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Mark writes, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, how many, how many of us, uh, even those of you who grew up in Bible-believing homes, Christian homes, who grew up in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, how many of us have really given much thought uh, to specifically to the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist. How many of us have thought about it? You've certainly read it. You've certainly probably heard it, maybe even heard it preached and taught upon. Um, it might be one of those stories in the Bible, in, in the Gospels, that we're most familiar with as far as the fact of its occurrence. In other words, we know that it actually happened. We know, we, we've read the story, we've heard that he's baptized. If someone were to give you a quiz, was Jesus ever baptized? Yes. True or false? True. Was it by John the Baptist or Elijah? Quick question, right? True. Um, but I think often we are probably most ignorant of it often as far as its significance. We know it happened. We might not be quite sure why it happened. What was the purpose of it? Well, I think that's the question that you and I must ask is just that. Why was Jesus baptized? Of all the people on this earth that ever walked this earth, why of, of all people was he baptized? What was the significance of it? What does it mean for us? It's clear that he was baptized not for himself but for us. So what does that mean? Well, we're going to look at at least three things this morning from our text. We're going to look at first the baptism itself, the baptism of Jesus Secondly, we're going to see the signs that accompany that baptism and what they mean, at least part of what they mean, hopefully. And third, we're going to see the significance of the baptism of Jesus. Why did he do it? What was the purpose of it? And the first thing we have to see in our text is the baptism itself. In Mark's gospel, you might notice that it really takes up one verse. The actual baptism itself is just in verse Nine, there we read, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. You know, Mark, as you might have known if you were here last week, Mark, his style is very, very much abrupt, very uh, clipped, very to the point. He omits lots of details that uh, others like Matthew and Luke and John tend to include. Um, but don't let the brevity of Mark's account, don't let the fact that it's so short, and we might want more detail, and he doesn't seem to leave those, he seems to leave those out. Don't let the brevity of Mark's account here uh, cause you to think that the baptism of Christ is no big deal. It's, it's, in, in a sense, it might even be just the opposite. You know, if you think about the brevity of his account, 
combined with the things that are included in the account, the signs from heaven, it should be a, a clue to us how important it really is. The brevity should make it kind of stand out and pop off the page of the Bible when we read it. It kind of puts an exclamation point on it, in a sense, if you really think about the way that Mark puts it in his gospel here. Well, the next thing you want to look at is the signs that accompanied his baptism. The signs that accompanied the baptism of Jesus. There's three of them in the text, found in verses 10 through 11, where Mark writes, And when he came up out of the water, Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now those those three signs that, that Mark tells us in rapid succession, they serve to show us something at least of the significance of Jesus' baptism. That this was an important event in his earthly life and and ministry. And we're going to look at the significance of them in a little bit of detail later on this morning. But the first of those signs is what? In verse 10, what 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 does Jesus see when he comes out of the water? He sees, Mark says, the heavens were what? Torn open. Mark's the only one that puts it quite like that. The others say that the heavens were open and that kind of a thing. The heavens were torn open. That's what he saw when he came out of the, out of the, the waters of, of baptism. It's a pretty forceful image, isn't it? And it really fits with Mark's, uh, Mark's way of, of writing. Remember last week we talked about how 40 or 41 times he uses the word immediately in the 16 chapters of his gospel. Everything is, is quick-paced. Everything is dramatic. Everything is, is like that. And he, he uses a, a, almost a violent image, if you think about it. Jesus saw the heavens being ripped open. Uh, when he came out of the water. It's as if God himself rips through the heavens and pulls the curtain back, so to speak, when his son is baptized. That's a pretty, pretty stark and dramatic reaction or response from God the Father to the baptism of his son. So it must be awfully important. When Mark says that Jesus saw the heavens being torn open, he's actually using the same Greek word that he uses towards the end of his gospel, in chapter 15, when Jesus was being crucified. When Jesus was crucified, uh, right after that, it says right after Jesus breathed his last, Mark 15:37. the very next verse says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Schizo, same word, to tear something in two from top to bottom. So it's not an accident. Mark bookends his gospel at the beginning and at the end. His baptism... And what that baptism pointed to, the death of Christ, with that dramatic word of something being torn in half. It's intentional on Mark's part, putting it that way. At the beginning and at the end of the book, we see that being used. The second sign, the second sign that accompanied the baptism of our Savior is that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form or likeness of a dove. Verse 10. Now, it doesn't say that he simply descended toward him just so Jesus would see him. Sometimes I think that's how we read it. Because it says he saw. He saw the heavens being torn open. He saw the Holy Spirit descending uh, as a a dove. What does it actually say? What does Mark say? That the Holy Spirit was descending on him. Prepositions are very important uh, in Scripture especially. He descended on. 
on him or to him or even into him, depending how you translate the word there. So it's, it's very specific what the Holy Spirit was doing in the text that Dan read this morning in our scripture reading from Isaiah 42, verse 1, uh, is, is what that's referring to. This, that, that thing where the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verse 1, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. It even sounds like the words of the Father, doesn't it? In you I'm well pleased. He delights in his servant. What does it say? I have put my servant, or my spirit, what? Upon him. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to what? To the nations. His servant is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the Holy Spirit was put upon him at his baptism. In fact, that same idea is found three times at least in the book of Isaiah, not just chapter 42, verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it mentions the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then again in Isaiah 61, verse 1, we read this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It's said in the first person. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord God is, there it is again, upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You might remember, if you are familiar with the other Gospels, with the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus reads that scroll, doesn't he? And what does he apply that to? He tells them, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Which is an amazing thing to say. He's saying, that's me. That, imagine someone if they aren't Jesus, having the gall to say, reading a portion of scripture about the Messiah and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in the Bible. This is about me. That's what Jesus said. He said, this is fulfilled in today in your hearing. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Sounds pretty important, doesn't it? Sounds pretty, uh, pretty momentous. The Messiah, you might know. What does the word Messiah mean? The Hebrew word Messiah means the same as the Greek word Christ. It means anointed one. Where was he anointed? At his baptism. It means, it means the anointed one. Someone set apart for service to the Lord. And when, it, when you talk about the Messiah, it's the chosen one, the anointed one, the one above all that was used by God and chosen by him for the salvation of his people. Well, the, the Messiah, or the anointed one, had to be anointed by his Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit had to be upon him without measure. And that's exactly what we see happening at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't know, really, if the crowds could see the heavens being torn open. We, we kind of assume that sometimes when you read the text. Well, everybody must have seen it. We don't know. Uh, who exactly saw it, we don't know if everybody could see the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Our text says, who saw it? Jesus saw it. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 32 to 35 tells us that John the Baptist also saw the Spirit descending like a dove. God told him, he says, the one who sent me told me, the one whom you, on whom you see the Spirit resting as a dove, that's him. John tells us, John the Baptist tells us in the book of John just that. Now, so we don't know who else saw it, but we ourselves are being told about it in the scriptures. So it was 
for our benefit as well in some sense, and also, and not just for the benefit of Jesus himself, although it certainly was for Christ's benefit. The scriptures say that he saw it for a reason, and he heard that voice for a reason. Well, the third and last sign accompanying the baptism of our Savior is what? It's the voice from, from heaven. In verse 11, Mark says, A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Second time in the book of Mark already in the first 11 verses that he talks about a voice. The first time the voice was who? Whom? John the Baptist. A voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the paths of the Lord. Prepare his way. Now we have a voice from heaven speaking to Jesus Christ. You know, in the second chapter of Luke, in, in Luke's account of the gospel, in his account of the birth of Christ, he tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to a group of shepherds. Remember, they were guarding or tending their, their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared in the, in, the, in the middle of the night when it was really dark. And the light from that angel, and probably his appearance as well, startled. It really terrified them. They were, very, were filled with a great fear. Uh, and he, he came to tell them good news of great joy, right? He says uh, that he told them of, quote, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as if that wasn't enough, in verse 13, uh, we're told that there was, quote, a multitude of the heavenly host, that's angels, uh, praising God. That must have been quite a sight to behold. Think about that. One angel scared the daylights out of them. They were terrified. And all of a sudden, there's a whole heavenly host it's like a whole regiment of, he- of the heavenly army is suddenly over them in the sky, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. So when Christ was born, according to Luke, heaven couldn't contain itself. The angels who, you don't find that kind of thing. We, we sometimes read those things in the Bible and you think, oh, that happened all the time back then. You know, Jesus, you know, healed a person born blind. Well, back in Bible times. I grew up thinking, that, oh, back in Bible times, that would have been great. You got to see the Red Sea split in half. You got to see, that, that wasn't an all-the-time thing. None of those things were. That's why they were so important. Everybody didn't say, oh, there, oh there's a guy out in the wilderness teaching and baptizing. Oh, we had that last year. I went to that last year. Uh, no, this was, was a momentous thing, John the Baptist and Christ's baptism. Um, but think about that, a heavenly host of angels, uh, which would have been kind of scary and very impressive when Christ was born. But at the baptism of the Savior, the heavens are torn open and God himself speaks. How important is the baptism of his son? Much more than we give it credit for or think about. And God the Father, his words regarding Christ testify both to Christ and to us that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. Second time in Mark's Gospel already we've seen that phrase. Sounds like it's some kind of a pattern. Mark wants us to know one thing about Jesus Christ, that he's not just some man. He's the Son of God himself. He's the Son of God himself. And the second time we hear it, not just from Mark's pen, but whose voice is the one saying it? God the Father. He's saying, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased Well, not only does he say that Jesus is his son, he also says that he is well pleased with him. J.C. Ryle notes that for all believers in Christ, those words, that you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, those words are, quote, a rich mine of comfort for believers. A rich mine of comfort. 
for us. Why is that? Why is the voice of God the Father from heaven to Jesus not just comforting to Jesus Christ, which, which it was, it was, but also even more possibly to you and to me if you're in Christ. He writes this, Ryle does, in themselves, that's us, in themselves and in their own doings, they see nothing to please God. They are daily sensible of weakness, shortcoming, and imperfections in all their ways. But let them recollect that the Father regards them as members of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He sees no spot in them, Song of Solomon 4, 7. He beholds them as in Christ, clothed in his righteousness and invested with his merit. They are accepted in the beloved, and when the holy eye of God looks at them, he is well pleased. Pretty important stuff to think about this testimony of God, this blessing or benediction of God the Father upon his Son, his incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. Are you in Jesus Christ by faith this morning? Then take comfort from those words that the Father spoke to the Son here in our text. For if you're in Christ, he sees no spot in you. If you're in Christ, he beholds you that way as in Christ and clothed with the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ, his own Son. When he looks upon you in Christ, he is well pleased. That's hard to believe, isn't it? That's really hard to believe, but that's why it's in Scripture. Because we would never think of that, we'd never in a million years think of that on our own. He's well pleased if you're in Christ with you. Well, before you go on too much further towards the significance of the baptism, the further significance of it, it shouldn't escape our attention. I trust that for most of you, maybe it hasn't escaped your attention, that in this little short passage, three verses in the first chapter of Mark, uh, we're kind of thrown into the deep end, aren't we? We're thrown into the deep end, uh, some deep doctrinal waters, some theological waters. You know, sometimes we said last week, if you were here, that Mark tends to minimize uh, the, the verbal teaching of Christ. He, he, he talks about action over and over again. That he, he shortens almost everything as far as the sermons, as far as the teachings. He doesn't even include some of them. He includes some of the parables, but he doesn't include the Sermon on the Mount, not because it's not important, but he has other purposes uh, in, in mind uh, than, than that. But it doesn't mean that, that Mark is not doctrinal. It doesn't mean that there's not deep theology and teaching in the book of Mark. What does he teach us in these three verses, really the last two uh, in some sense? But he throws us right into the Trinity, doesn't he? You know, it might be the most difficult doctrine to comprehend. It's really incomprehensible. It's something we can accept and apprehend, but not something we can totally understand. But he talks about the Trinity here. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity is the fact that there is one true and living God. One. And that one true and living God exists in how many persons? Three. Three persons. Our shorter catechism question six, you might be familiar with it. It puts it this way. There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance. The same in substance. Equal in power and glory. Think about that. God the Son, Jesus Christ, equal in power and glory to God the Father. 
the Holy Spirit, the neglected, probably the most neglected member of the Godhead, equal in power and glory to God the Father. We should always remember that, uh, that truth. So one God and three persons. And notice how matter-of-factly Mark states it. He just kind of throws it in there, doesn't he? He doesn't defend it. He doesn't try to prove it. He doesn't even hitch over the head with it. He just puts it right out there. He says in verses 10 to 11, And when he, Jesus, the Son of God, right, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. He doesn't say God the Father said that, but what, what can you tell by the words? Who would say to, to the Son of God, you're my Son, God the Father? So Jesus, the Son of God, is coming out of the water. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and the voice of God the Father tells him that he is indeed his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. So you've got the Trinity right at the get-go. You know, John doesn't wait till chapter 14. You know, I better ease, you know, we would do that. We, we want to ease people in. You're going you're gonna to offend people. You're going to throw them off right at the get-go. Let's put that chapter 10. 11. Mark, first 11 verses, throws it right at you. There's no getting around it in his gospel. The fact that Jesus, when he says he's the son of God, he's the son of God. That's what he is talking about there. But let's look at a little bit at least of the, the significance of the baptism of Christ, our third and last point. His baptism, uh, if you, if just looking at it in, in the flow of the narrative of, of the Gospels, his baptism marks the beginning of Jesus Christ's public ministry, doesn't it? It's the start. It's the inauguration of his ministry. You know, the, Mark doesn't even give you a birth narrative. But the first thing he does include is Jesus' baptism. And he gives the significance of it before when it comes to that, that uh, quotation from Malachi and from Isaiah in the previous verses. His baptism, as we already saw in some, uh, some length, is, it was his anointing of the Holy Spirit for his work as the Messiah, as the anointed one. That anointing of the Holy Spirit in his baptism set him apart and gifted him to accomplish the work of our salvation. That's really, he, didn't, he didn't receive the Holy Spirit uh, anointing him for no reason. It was to set him apart. It was to equip him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the God-man, for the work he was going to do. You're going to see in the next passage that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, that the Holy Spirit's mentioned again. And what does the Holy Spirit do? It, he drives Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by, this, by the evil one. You'll notice if you read through Mark especially, the Holy Spirit is mentioned again and again and again in relation to the works and miracles and the work of our salvation of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask one question, at least when, with regard to our text. Why did Jesus need to be baptized in the first place? Remember, the, the, the first eight verses talk about what kind of baptism that it was. You, know, if you, you might know that it, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew adds a little bit more detail. John the Baptist didn't get it. John the Baptist, so if you're sitting there wondering, why would Jesus have to be baptized? Well, John the Baptist is right there with you. When Jesus comes up and wants to get baptized, John's like, you should be baptizing me. You know, what, I think we got this whole thing a little backwards here. Matthew 3, verses 14 to 15, it says, John would have prevented him. John wasn't going to do it. 
John's like, no, 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 no. You know, it's a, not so, Lord. You know, things you should never say. Not so, Lord, right? John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Good idea. When the Lord of glory tells you to do something, it's a good idea to consent. Well, frankly, we should find it as difficult to understand that as John did. When you read this text, our first thought was, should be, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 4, we're told that Mark's baptism was that he was proclaiming a baptism of what? Of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If there was ever a person who didn't need such a baptism, it was Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus Christ himself was the one person in human history who needed no repentance. He's the one person who needed no forgiveness of sins, had no sins to confess of his own. He was a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1.19. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2, verse 22. He's the one person, in a sense, that John didn't expect to come to him, at least not for baptism. In Jesus' baptism, what's he doing? He's identifying himself with sinners. And why does he do that? Matthew's text tells us to fulfill all Righteousness. So at both the beginning and end of Mark's gospel, we find Jesus identifying himself and being identified with sinners, with the sins of his people, for the salvation of his people. The baptism that he underwent with John the Baptist points forward to what's going to happen at the end of the gospel on the cross. In his book, The Death of Death, In the death of Christ, John Owen, the great Puritan writer, he writes this, He, that is God, he was always well pleased with the holiness of his person, the person of Jesus, the excellency and perfection of his righteousness, and the sweetness of his obedience, but he was displeased with the sins that were charged on him, and therefore it pleased him to bruise him and put him to grief with whom He was always well pleased. Did you catch that? Whose sins was God displeased with on Christ? Ours. The sins that were charged to Christ, put to his account, weren't his, they were ours. In Jesus' baptism, he's identifying with the sins of his people. That's us, if you're in Christ. The sins of his people were put to Jesus Christ's account, and so it pleased God the Father to pour out his wrath on his his well-pleasing Son in my place and yours. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God the Father, he made him, Jesus, he made him uh, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what his baptism points to for us. That's why he was baptized. That's why he tells John the Baptist it was to fulfill all righteousness. It had to be done. He had to go through as our representative all those things, not because he had sinned, but because we did. And he died in our 
place. It's the chorus of our final hymn that we're going to sing today. It puts it, Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's the Son of God who's always pleasing to his Father died so that we might be pleasing to the Father in him. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy, your great love to us in Christ. We thank you that you uh, tell us in your word that, that Jesus Christ is your Son, your beloved Son, the one you love, and that he has always been well-pleasing in your sight. We thank you that such a one was willing to come and die and live in our place. And we thank you that in him and only in him, through his righteousness alone, accounted to us by faith in him, that you, in Christ, you call us your children. You adopt us as sons. And we can know, as crazy as it sounds, that we can be well-pleasing to a holy God if we are in Christ by faith. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the book of Mark. We thank you for your work of mercy in the lives of many, many millions of people who have heard the gospel and believed. We pray that you might make that continue to be the case. Work in us. Help us to believe this, that we can be well-pleasing to you if we're in Christ. And give us grace to reach out with the same good news to our neighbors. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.